A up. How's it going? Greetings from Niseko in uh, Hokkaido in Japan, where it is snowing. I'm happy to report. Arrived yesterday after three jet lag days in Tokyo. And the word that was most being bandied around about the snow conditions up here before arrival was low tide. Because like most of Europe, Hokkaido is having a pretty dire season. And there's been a lot of metaphorical snow dances going on around the place to try and tempt that legendary Japao to come and bury the place quick smart. So yeah, pretty happy when it started snowing on the drive up from the airport and it's continued to snow for the last 24 hours. I mean, true, it does basically need another six foot to get to classic Japanese levels. There's still a lot of bamboo poking out, which is very unusual for this time of year, but we still had a good day today. It looks set to continue for the foreseeable future. Not that you care about that, I'm sure, because on to this week's episode, which is the last instalment of my Portland trip, recorded in November 2019 during a quick week in the City of Roses. Seems like a lifetime ago now. Actually, it was only two short months ago. Anyway, this one is with my old mate Jonathan Weaver, and it's a fitting departure from the usual as it was recorded on our penultimate day in Portland during an extremely pleasant and leisurely drive to the Oregon coast. And when I say recorded during the drive, it really was this one, as you're going to hear. A road shotgun broke out the mic and we had what is, even for me, a properly meandering conversation over the course of a day. So to set the scene, me and Weaver are both extremely average, yet very keen surfers. And the forecast looked pretty amazing on this day. Granted, it looked about five times too big for us kooks, but, you know, worth a look nonetheless. So on a bright sunny morning, we headed out recording the podcast as we went. Sure enough, we got to the first spot, which is coincidentally where they filmed the uh, cliffs on both sides, seen in point break. And it was absolutely massive. The type of surf I definitely had no business being out there in. And my self-preservation instinct is pretty strong in these situations. So we sacked it off and instead carried on driving and recording our way up and down the coast. And as you'll hear... I think this was pretty much the perfect format for covering the very circuitous and inspirational career John Weaver's carved out for himself. Now, I do say this quite often in these episodes, but then I do get asked this question a lot, which is, how do I get a career in the industry? And I'd say listening to this episode would be a very good place to start because Weaver's managed to travel, literally and metaphorically, a long, long way from his local indoor slope on the south coast of England to his current role at Nike in Portland, taking in stints as a journalist, a rider, a team manager, a general industry mover and shaker at Forum and Nike Snowboarding along the way. And something else that I say probably way too much in these episodes is I go back a long way with John. In fact, as we worked out during our conversation, I actually gave him what could technically be called his first job in the industry way back in my White Lines days. And he is definitely one of the closest mates I've made in this daft old industry. I've somehow dedicated two thirds of my life to at this point. So I make no apologies for saying that. Hugely enjoyable few hours for us. I don't see John very often. So, you know, the fact that we got to spend a beautiful Friday spending the day hanging out, driving to the coast um, was great. And we generally waffled, ruminated and shaggy dog storied our way around the place which is what you're about to listen to. Obviously, some background noise in this one. Whatever, you'll deal with it. Um, My thanks to John for multitasking so effectively and for giving such an entertaining and hugely insightful peek into his career path. So here it is, me and the peerless John Weaver, Jack to a king. He's going to like that. See you at the end.
So um, I'm going to hold the mic like that. We'll see how we go on. So set, set the scene. Okay. What are we doing? Um, so we just dropped off Lenny at daycare at Nike, and then we're going to take a drive out to the beach. It looks pretty massive out there, but we'll see if we can find a find a little shoulder to get on maybe. And if not, maybe just watch a few braver souls than us try and surf. What normally happens around here when it's like 16 feet at 16 seconds, which is what the forecast is, <laughs> is basically, what what do people of our surfing ability do in <laughs> circumstances? Well, so there's one spot that might work, Seaside the Cove, um, and that gets some protection. But then we went last year when it was really big and we actually just went out and watched. There was a few people toe surfing at, um, couple of the spots out there and it's pretty amazing just to see that as a spectacle hopefully we might get to see um curtis Cezek out there today doing his sli uh jet ski towing as well it's a bit it's, a, it's pretty common then that there is a tow scene over it there, there's definitely a tow scene over here and it obviously has to be the right conditions and big enough and clean enough but yeah. this time it is pretty good because there's generally less wind or it's offshore um and there's consistent swell at this time of year so how often are you doing this drive what, what we got about an hour and a half about an hour and a half yeah so we try and do this um once once every couple of weeks and it's pretty good because you just get to keep your arms in like even if it's not that good surfing you can still kind of get the arms moving and stuff and so then when you do go on a proper trip somewhere you're kind of not starting from zero again yeah are you are you more amped on surfing than snowboarding these days um I definitely see. Yeah. I definitely see you like, <laughs> you know, doing more trips and. Well, I think it. I think. I mean, I've heard you talk about it, but it's one of those. It's it's hard if you've enjoyed being good at something to a certain level, and then every time you go, you feel like you regress. Oh man, that's the worst. <laughs> well, I've actually kind of made peace with that a little bit with them. Um... Yeah, and I, I must say, like the last trip we did to Austria was kind of like that, where I was kind of like, right, well. I don't need to try and go to the park. Don't need to jump. Like that's, we can just cruise. That's a great feeling, though. That yeah, that's and, like yeah. And also, I was taking my Fuck son up, that. and I was just like, right, well, this is great. We can just go ride, and I don't have to worry about that. But sort of on the flip side of that, with surfing, because I'm starting from let's from such a low base, I'm still trying to like, okay, can I even do a proper turn? And if you do one turn, like the last trip we did, um, when we went to Portugal there was like one of the last days I did a turn and you're like, okay, I think I'm actually making some progress here. Yeah, I, like that was actually a turn. Yeah, and of course the next day you go out and you like can't do anything. <laughs> like, yeah. right, well, I'm regressing again. But so probably surfing right now just because I'm learning stuff. I don't know if I've ever actually done a, a turn that I, I, actually I can remember one turn that I thought was all right. The, pro the problem is now- Which is like, not a great hit rate. <laughs> the problem is now with like things like Surfline and everyone having like, phones and stuff out you think you've done a good turn and then someone shows you and you're like i mean i just wiggled my hips a little bit yeah down, well we're always line. sending each other shit pictures of ourselves aren't we yeah and, uh, comparing comparing notes and i like to think i'm getting better but i don't know this is actually the first time we'll have surfed together it is yeah big, big day big, i mean we'll have to see if we get out i didn't but. i didn't sort of think it would be 16 foot off the oregon coast um, I'm actually still not convinced we're going to surf today, to be oh, honest. I'm, I'm with you, don't worry. But yeah, you know, we've done, we've, we've packed the car, we're, we're on route, we've got we, boards, we've got everything. We're the classic, we've got all the gear in the back. You got your water housing on. Cheap. <laughs> <laughs> um, nice. So, and, uh, you know, it's, we were just talking before we started recording slash driving. You know, it's obviously a, a really awful day 
in snowboarding awful two days with the news about Jake Burton I don't think I've actually really sort of got my head around it that much really at the minute no. uh, it, it almost feels too like random doesn't it you know what yeah it's one of those I mean he's what was he 65 I think he's 66 66 I mean that's that's no age for someone who's done so much for the sport but um I suppose on the other hand you know well he, he fought back from cancer already once and I know then he went off to live in Switzerland for a couple of years and so you hope he spent the last few years of his life that he actually got a few good turns in yeah um, but I think it was just the nature of because I know he sent an email out to everyone at Burton I think 11 days ago right saying that it had come back and that it had got into the lymph nodes again and he was going to have to battle it right but then yeah to wake up and um, I got a text from a friend who I used to work with at Burton on what was it Tuesday morning now or Wednesday morning and you, yeah you can't quite believe it because you think like, 11 days ago he was just thinking right this is just another obstacle I have to get over yeah and then all of a sudden he's no longer there and it's it is sad the, the flip side of it being a sad moment it makes you realise how much he's done for the sport and not only the sport but how many people's lives he's fully impacted yeah I mean it's that classic sort of poignancy when somebody that well regarded dies as well because you know there's this outpouring as we've seen on social of everybody I mean literally everybody in snowboarding yeah. and we were just saying you know even at our humble level in the industry like definitely have the life I've got and you presumably would put, say the same thing got the life you've got Yeah, and I think as, as a pretty direct consequence of his life and actions really that, that was the thing which is interesting because for sure the snowboarding element was one part of it and I think we've all had amazing days riding powder or whatever like thanks to people like Jake but I think it's more on the sort of human level like I certainly wouldn't have met my wife if it wasn't for working at Burton where we met um, I wouldn't have ended up working over here wouldn't have probably two kids um, and you know it's interesting to go through Instagram because that was the stories that everyone was saying of like well if it wasn't for this person I wouldn't have my husband or wife I wouldn't have the job I have now and it makes you realise how deeply he touched so many people on on a deeper level than just actually the act of snowboarding yeah and, and you, it's again the classic in this situation like just kind of hope they realized you know it's almost like a shame it takes this for people to acknowledge it yeah i was reading i was reading something about um us open i believe and i think it was last year when he went mid-practice and he said to all the burton team riders i think it grillo wrote it on his instagram and he was like right let's all go for a lap and then afterwards they went back to the lodge and they had a photo taken you know with the middle finger up and that kind kind of was the sentiment you saw around yesterday where it was like they did get some good times at the end there of actually going snowboarding together which is yeah really nice and you see that I mean even like the ride around tables that they do at Burton like it's whilst it's a you know the industry leader in snowboarding and the biggest company it still is that family vibe like he he would touch sort of everything from product team product to how team riders etc it's just a so interwoven with the fabric of the company was that your first industry job um i mean i had a couple of jobs before that hey, hey dry slope <laughs> correspondent. i know dry slope correspondent we, need to, talk, we need to talk about that yeah I, um, would i did i actually 
technically give you your first um, industry side role with that? Um, can I so take, you know what, can you I know take what, credit for that? You know what you did do was probably give me one of the greatest learning experiences I've ever had. You probably don't even remember this, but I remember the first submission I did, you're like, right, we need 3,000 words about dry slope riding in Britain. So I wrote that. Sorry about that. Sent it, <laughs> sent it in and it was obviously on email, but like it was as if the teacher's pen had come along with red pen. And I remember reading this email at home at my parents' house and I was like, wow, I'm obviously not cut out for writing because <laughs> you were just kind of taking it apart. Like, oh God, that makes me sound like every- a right twat. But I think with all these things, it's like if you have someone who's honest with you, it definitely helps you kind of understand how you can get better. And that definitely helped me for the next two years we worked together on White Lines because that was, um, yeah, you just need people to be straight up and honest with you. Yeah, I mean, it's funny thinking back, isn't it? So it's made in just made in Britain made in Britain the dedicated dry slope section of white lines and obviously we met because you know you were riding uh, yeah came up on the dry slope scene and you know it let's be honest is a pretty tough gig the old made in Britain beat I think it had, yeah. I think it had a life I think it had a well, lifespan there, there was me and Adrian Cairns the photographer AD Cairns did it for years though, yeah and he was he was know, well in the trenches he was amazing and the thing that I did love about it though was once you actually spent time looking at all of the different scenes in the UK and you went around and you met the people who were living it and you just realized what it means to so many people riding dry slope and um, you know I think about sort of the scenes you go up and see up to Halifax and you'd see Wayne Taylor and all those boys and like they're just loving it and that is snowboarding to them like Friday night up at the dry slope yeah well Jamie still goes doesn't he exactly still up there and that's you know I think that almost seems to be where he's in his element and then you'd go to sort of you know we used to ride down at Calshot while I was at university Calshot that's what I was trying to think of which was like the the most unpromising (laughs) well it was set up it was funny so like the year that we the year I really got into it it was a 40 meter slope so like 100 foot roughly um and all it had was like five rails next to each other so you couldn't do a line you literally had to get this t- this little tow rope do a rail and get the tow rope again but it meant you just got so many runs in an evening like you'd get like i don't know 80 runs on a single rail but the wednesday nights we used to have down there were so special like we'd all go from university and you'd go down there and have a few beers and we had this little snowboard club we made a couple of videos down there, there was yeah one lad he built a uh, he built a rail in his back garden. I was going to say that was you. Rail. That was you, lot, wasn't it? That, yeah. had, that guy had that like ridiculous jerry rigged yeah and um, setup basically yeah, and to drop in. You'd walk in through someone's bedroom, jump out the window, and then yeah, like with the Maiden Britain thing, you would just see how many people it meant so much to them. And the other thing, it was really great. You got to meet so many of the kids who were coming through. So that was at the time like Sam Cullum, Chris Schultz all of the ATV boys from Milton Keynes, like Chris Chat and everyone. And again, you just got to see all these people and that was like, that was all of their snowboarding to them. Yeah. Well, that's the great thing about dry slope. And that's the, that's the funny thing. That's the unique thing that British snowboarding has that no one else has got really. I mean, I know they have it a little bit in, in like Holland, don't they? Yeah. And stuff, it- but like, I, I do think it's like pretty unique to, to the UK and it does like engender like a real specific camaraderie that British snowboarders understand, right? And oh, and, and have yeah. in common. I mean, even last night, you know, we interviewed Bryce Knights and he he mentioned it. He was like, after after the interview, we were chatting about people that we knew that we had in common. Turned out he was good mates with Johnny Barr, 
and he knew go. he knew loads of the Brits and he was yeah. like oh yeah that was the first time I ever heard about dry slope <laughs> and like fully pissed himself and was like you know like what the fuck is that all about yeah well, I, I mean I've still got the uh, I've still got one of the fingers to prove it like you show people these kind of fingers that you have like now oh, they think it's hilarious the Euros don't they yeah and they're like and, what, and, the, what? and the Americans so what so what is it and then you kind of explain it and then they're like and now obviously with wave pools in surfing you're kind of like it can kind of do that for an like surfing maybe like where people have got the ability to just go consistently wherever they live yeah so that was your was was that your first experience um, of snowboarding then so well, i actually got into snow and it's sort of tried and tested formula so i used to ski on dry slope in chatham my mum would take me to like do as many different sports as possible and she took me skiing um and then at the age of I really enjoyed it like I'd go down there do a bit of slalom and then at like 16 or 17 actually I went on my first trip on snow I went to France stayed in the chalet and on the last day I remember we tried I borrowed a snowboard off someone it's hard boots all the setup and you know you fall over a bunch but I remember like as soon as we got on the bus on the way down the hill I got on the bus and I spoke to the teachers and I was like right well I'm gonna go and do a season next year right and I had no real knowledge of what a season looked like or felt like, but I was just like, well, I know I'm not going to go to university. I'm going to go snowboarding for a year. And it was just literally just a few turns one afternoon on a hard boot snowboard. And, I, and that basically changed yeah, my life. I was just like, this is the thing that I'm going to do. Yeah. And yeah, so I went down, told the teachers, went back home, went back to mom and dad. And, you know, my dad, he was definitely like, he had high hopes for me to be the first person from our family to go to university. Well, it's a big thing that for that generation, isn't it? Yeah, and he was really my, proud my, about my, it. My mum was really like that as well. Like, it, I don't think I kind of appreciate because I did go to university, and I don't think I really appreciated until afterwards like how much of a because it is a class thing in the UK, isn't it? And that generation basically, if you were born in a certain class, it just wasn't an option for you. Yeah, was it? my my dad didn't. I mean, his dad unfortunately passed away when he was really young, and he started working at the bank. Um, in Wales and you know he, he did all kinds of jobs he was basically looking after his mum from the age of 16 yeah and so to be able to give your children the opportunity to go to university was a really big thing for him and so for me to come back from a snowboard trip going yeah sorry there's, there's a new plan yeah <laughs> I'm gonna go where'd you go yeah so um I went to Valdez there so I got back and I started applying for as many jobs as I can as I could sorry and then I um got a job with first choice holiday company and they were just like right whatever you do don't bother applying for a job in Valdez and don't bother applying for a job as a barman right went to the interview sure enough got the job as a barman in Valdez and yeah went there and I was just like this is just the greatest place you could ever go as, a, <laughs> as an 18 year old yeah you just it's like kid in a candy shop and so basically kind of learned to snowboard properly there and it was um it was amazing like over that next couple of years met Mark Ruprelli and Josh, they did seasons there and it was, oh God, it was amazing. Literally what, just what, going out. What year jumps. is this? Uh, this was like 98, 99. Okay, right. Um, so yeah, did a couple of winters there before I sort of thought, okay, right, maybe I should use my brain a little bit more. Right. And then went back to college. Oh, you did? Oh, university, yeah. So oh, I went what? back to Southampton right. Institute. It was basically the lowest barrier to entry to get into in terms of cost and qualifications and what did you do uh did international business right and it was good and the second year went to finland and studied in Uvascular up near where the nokia um offices were yeah 
did yeah did a semester up there which was really cool and got to snowboard in finland a little bit and you then, ride talma no we had like a little mountain where we were um tiny little thing but yeah rode up there and then after yeah did that for a semester and then came back and then the third year because obviously you're trying to get through your finals i actually didn't bother going snowboarding on snow at all and i just committed fully to going to calshot and we just went there every wednesday for a year that's brilliant that it was amazing so british isn't it and, and what you what you were always really good at as well i remember from from when i first met you and sort of clocked what you were up to you were always really really good at just like generating stuff to do you know you yeah. were you, you were always like super proactive well yeah because i don't know i suppose i always felt i was a little bit later to the sort of game in the industry than everyone else and i also knew i certainly wasn't as talented as most of the others so i was like right i have to do some work with this so working with you on white lines was kind of a nice way to do a little bit of both and so get a little bit of coverage do some writing kind of learn a little bit about how the industry is and then yeah one of those years we started um we started hunger pain and we made the film with yeah mark and josh chris chat and uh tom elliott so that was when you were all living in myhoffen wasn't it um yeah that was the season we did there so after college we went to myhoffen had just like a year working serving schnitzels to people yeah and then the next year we we're like right we should get off and do our own film so then um yeah like four or five of us kind of got together and did all the pre-work got sponsors and then made like a film with some of the sort of up-and-coming riders because there was an amazing body of work obviously that tim and gender would drive through lockdown projects but then there was all these kids who we kind of met through working at white lines where i was like well Chris Chat and all these kids are amazing and they kind of need a bit of a yeah. sort of platform as well. So then we set about making our own film. And did you, yeah, I mean, you kind of produced and ran that, right? Pretty much. Um, I found people who were much more talented at each part of it to do it. I, I kind of got the money from the sponsors and then Damien Doyle, who'd made, um, ironically enough, Standing Sideways, yeah. the dry slope film. Yeah, which, which, I, was, a, which was a really, um, I mean, that was a pre, pre-visionary little project that wasn't it yeah i mean some of the like i always remember charlie clark I remember his part in it like switch front boards on rainbow rails he was amazing and there was so many good riders coming through that so damien kind of he was kind of in there sort of on the editing process chris chat was doing a lot of it and then um mac mac dog tom elliott got involved as well and so kind of a group effort and the first year we did um we kind of got everyone to film their own bit and submit in and it was just like all the video parts and that was that was a great year we had a great winter season good snow and um amazing sort of premiere up in london to cap it all off yeah um was henry involved as well at this point henry was in there yeah he was um doing what henry does focusing on his snowboarding not picking up a camera and just being being henry basically yeah he was charging all the lines in austria um and yeah we were living together at that point we accommodation was always hard to come by in austria because you just couldn't really find it and then this one year tom's girlfriend sylvia she was like i think there's an op- apartment going spare or a house going spare so i called this bloke and he's like oh yeah you can come around and check it out and it was a 10 bedroom house i think it was like a thousand euros a month or 1200 so you basically had your own room for like a hundred euros a month right so we took that thing on for the first sort of year or two it was amazing like you know you're close to the lifts we had a little backyard rail park set up and it was 
the most fun ever and it was just a great base where people could come out and stay and so we had plenty of place for you know people who came over from Morzine to film and stuff like that yeah and then yeah so we lived there we made that film and then we continued it on and but like during that period I started working down at Burton and so my sort of my propensity for the sort of 4am wake up call when someone comes in and there's like music banging on yeah, kind of was, dropped a little bit that that happens that happened yeah but it was a great experience and i think it's such a talk about rites of passage like living in a snowboard house in a resort is something that i think as much as i shudder to think about my kids doing it i do <laughs> i do hope they experience it because it is one of those things you, you just money can't buy yeah well you boys had a real tight scene there didn't you yeah we were really lucky we had a we had a really good um group of us we sort of we were there long enough to kind of get in and sort of I don't know get acceptance from the locals and everyone and I think Henry did a lot of that because he's just so good at getting along with people especially sort of with his language skills and stuff yeah um yeah so we had three I had three really good years kind of in that zone so yeah great yeah and you I mean you've been like like you've described you did basically kind of create your own scene in the in the best sort of tradition really you know like well we're, we're just going to do it ourselves we're going to make a film we're going to you now you were again like i remember doing the main britain stuff you were always like yeah we're gonna we're gonna go and shoot a rail by the thames you know yeah. like there was always like projects there was well, always that you were always like i suppose whatever i've done i've always been like there's always there's always a way of doing it like there's always i think quite often people don't even try to do stuff and then that and they'll just kind of have a closed mindset before they do it because like the rail that we did in uh, London right by the Thames like there's an amazing handrail there and I think who is it Mike Rhodes he was at college with me and his dad lived down the street there and he's like I've seen this rail we should do it so we got some Dendex from someone I don't know we had a roll of it and we put some on the inrun and some on the outrun and then you had to do it at low tide because obviously the Thames would be up and yeah we went down there and no one stopped us no police no security turned up and we were down there for like three hours with a few of us and yeah, it was insane, like right by the Thames. Yeah, um, have you you've still got them shots? I have somewhere. <clears throat> yeah, we've got to dig them out for yeah. sure. This is pretty amazing. This is like the this is like the Oregon scenery. Yeah, we? so as we go up here, we go you go up over the pass and stuff, and so depending on when you come through here in the winter months, there'll be snow on the ground, definitely frost, and there's um yeah, there's some amazing views out the side. Are you riding locally here? Do you ride up um, Hood? A little bit, yeah. So I go up to Mount Hood, but now I'm more sort of on the weekend warrior thing and Oregonians are pretty keen on the old weekend warrior mission themselves they've got their uh, Subarus loaded up they're, yeah. all, they're all in the car by 6 and you have to be if you want to park in the main lot you have to be up there by 8am right um, and it doesn't have that sort of like Meyerhoff and Lax thing of just cruise up to the lift at sort of 8.30 and take a few runs before everyone gets here like up here everyone's there and they're mad keen for it yeah 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 um, so you mentioned that you started working for Burton. So this is when you were over there. So what? How did that come about? So yeah. So the um, year after I, we did the first Hunger Pain film. So I was writing for Forum at the time. So I got really, really lucky. I'd had a couple of sponsors, but then I remember Ian Sansom. He was doing Document at the time, and he was seeing Cara, I believe, and was like, "Oh well." you know they're looking for some riders with forum and so luckily i got hooked up with them and that summer i was working in norway in folga Fona shaping at one of the camps up there 
and I remember coming back and we were on the ferry and then I saw I got an email and it was like oh forum's been sold to Burton and so get back and I sort of go down to the Burton office and just introduce yourself try and make as good an impression as you can quickly and there was an American lady there who'd been installed to kind of integrate the brand into Burton and yeah she we just got on really well and she said right well if we have any opportunities over the next year like would you want to help us and so first of all they wanted to do like a forum youngblood series where it was just like kids events to get people kind of like to see the next generation of of riders around the world right um so i organized a couple of them for them worked at ispo for them and so tom west rode with me at forum as well and so we both would like man the stand at ispo and that was what was this like 2005 so it was kind of like you know work on the stand all day have the after party somewhere end up at one of those at the pleasure party yeah p1 whatever it is p1 get home at sort of four or five wake up at seven and be on the stand cleaning up i mean it's it's yeah again i remember going to Espo once right no hotel didn't need it and um and just going out every night yeah and just and then that like wherever you ended up you'd sleep and you'd go to Espo. yeah i mean the thought of that now like absolutely it feels would, uh, it, yeah it's it enough work. to give me a nosebleed so we um yeah so so she was just and it was one of those where it was like she wasn't concrete in like oh there's a job for you it was just more like well if you want to do it and you want to take it somewhere and i was just kind of thinking about okay what's next after snowboarding so i was 24 25 at the time and so then she was like well we need to put together a european team sorry this is pretty good right here Owen. it's pretty good amazing yeah it's pretty beautiful so um yeah so then she was like okay well we want to put together a european team would you be able to help us and so i started working on that and that was really nice it was just a couple of days a week so i could still snowboard a lot and then she switched she went back to the us and then marion keating came in who he's over at libtech now and pretty quickly he was like right well we'd like you to work full time for us which i wasn't really sure about because i still was harboring ambitions of being somewhat of a decent snowboarder right um but yeah marion being marion i god we had some great times together um he was like and he's german my <laughs> wife's german so i can he was like well you're not really the next sean white <laughs> i was like well marion that's true there's that brutal honesty again yeah and i was like yeah but you know i could you know maybe do the brits <laughs> and he was just like you either have, you're either going to work for us full time or not at all um and we're definitely not going to pay you to snowboard for us anymore so i was like okay cool so they're the options on the table so i took it and that was honestly the best decision i could have made because i learned so much from him and Harzi and all the crew down at Burton it was like the best sort of introduction to the industry I could have had yeah that's like proper fast track straight in there yeah we got in there and it was it was all of a sudden you know we had our own little zone but then if I ever needed anything you know I could call someone like Harzi and just be like right there's this kid in Sweden what do you know and Harzi's kind of like that legend status in Burton and Innsbruck and Snowden in general and you just kind of had the sort of inside track to someone who really knows what's up and that just put us put us in a great position trying to get Forum up and running in Europe yeah so how long did that last um I was at Forum for I was actually there for five years and it was it was a amazing experience because we kind of went from like the next thing was building the team as I say so we signed a few um 
a few younger athletes around Europe. And sort of whilst we were doing that, that was the moment when forums started coming out with the films again. So obviously back in the day, you know, there were sort of the second wave of forums. The second wave, yeah. yeah. So that, for example, um, and forum were against them, and and it was amazing. So in, at that point, I was still, and I still pretty much am. I was pretty much like super grom. I was just like yeah, fanboy on everyone. And like the first, one of the first trips we did, I remember we went to Sasfe one summer to do like a demo or something. And JP Walker showed up and Yoni Malmi. He shows up and I'm still fanning out. And of course, straight away, someone's like, right, well, have you got him ready? Is he ready for this thing? Is he ready for that thing? And then you're having to sort of be like, right, well, you need to be here in 10 minutes. You need to do this. And so it was a pretty good introduction because you, you realize quite quickly, like, right, well, I need to be, you know, this isn't about me anymore as a snowboarder. This is about all of these other people and how to make them show up well. And so that was, um, yeah, that was kind of the first thing I had to do. And then, yeah, when we were doing these movie tours, Later that autumn, you'd have JP Walker come over. You'd have, um, we had Travis Kennedy, Stevie Bell, Eddie Wall, Lowry. They'd all show up. Yeah, I mean, it's a legit team, wasn't it? Yeah, and, you know, the year before, you'd been there watching promo copy and stuff and fanning out on all of them. And then all of a sudden, you're in charge of organizing, getting them around Europe. And they didn't mind a night out. Yeah. Which obviously made things interesting because we were doing these tours and we did them for sort of four years where you'd organize say six stops and it would be go to a town, show the film, have a party, wake up at six, jump on a plane, get somewhere else. And yeah, it's, you know, when you've been looking after yourself primarily for the 25 years you've been alive so far to all of a sudden having to be looking after say eight people who've been out all night and they haven't really been to Europe that much and they're just loving it. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're, you know, it kind of puts you at a different place in life, but it was, um, again it was it was just one of those really lucky sort of opportunities i got to work there did you find it difficult challenging or did you just do you not somebody that really worries about that um no well the interesting thing with though when you're working with those kind of riders i found that the majority of them are so professional that they fully get it like i always found like you'd have people in the middle who maybe thought they were better than they were yeah didn't understand like so if like pat moore example he started coming through at the time and like he'd come on trips with you and some of them like they're so professional they fully get your role they're like okay you're here to make sure i show up and i've got the right logo on my t-shirt and i'm at the signing session on time and i'm doing this and they fully get your role of being there and they're very thankful for it yeah but it is just it's again it's just that flip where and you see it a lot with riders now where as they come to the end of their career they've been very used to being somewhat selfish and just like okay everything's about me and making sure i get to have as much fun as possible to then all of a sudden you have to switch it and become selfless and you're just like okay i might not have to i might not eat today i might not sleep today but i have to make sure these other eight people get where they need to be yeah so i have to tell you one story on this one because all the while this was going on, we we're also building like a European team as well, trying to get the next generation of riders. And um, we signed, there was one Finnish lad we signed called Jonas Mustanen. Did you ever meet him? No. So we kind of don't know a lot about him actually. So he came along just, he was like after Danny Larson's sort of came along. And then Jonas came along. I remember he turned up to Ispo one year and he had like white, super skinny tights on. He had dark black hair black moustache and 
obviously being Finnish, he had a certain way about him. And he, but he was one of the most amazing, like stylish riders I've ever worked with. You know, he was doing frontside seven, double nose grabs, like all this kind of crazy stuff that if people were doing it today, I feel like he would be getting way more kind of props than he did back then. Right. At the time people were just kind of like, well, it's kind of good, but you know, and he, I remember we do, yeah, all of his tricks were just so different. But again, because he was from Finland, he kind of had that that little reckless gene. Yeah. And so we had a uh, we had an apartment actually in Meyerhofen that we rented from Beckner's mum. And so basically, whenever any of these riders would come from Europe, I'd be like, right, well, you can stay there. They could go up and ride the Penken Park, and they would have a whale of a time for a couple of months. And Jonas, he you know he could get led easily astray. And so one night he goes out, and uh, next morning I get a phone call. And it's the police in obviously in Meyerhofen and they call me. And so I turn up at this door and this is, again, this is Beckner's mum's apartment. So I'm like very, just in general, I'm trying to tread lightly. I turn up and there's like, it looks like knife marks at the door frame. And I'm thinking, oh shit, like what's happened here? It looks like there's been a murder, right? The door's like hanging off its hinges and there's like these knife marks, what I think are knife marks on the frame on the other side. So the police haven't gone in yet. They wanted me to go in because I was the one who had the contract to rent it. We walk in and of course, Jonas is like passed out on the floor, still in his clothes from going out the night before. And so we wake him up and he was just mortified. Like he was just like, oh, what? Oh, what happened here? Uh, <laughs> what's with the knife marks, mate? And so I'm like, Jonas, what's happened? He's like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't find key. I use snowboard. <laughs> so he had, he, he had this snowboard outside the apartment, so he's picked it up and he's just started chipping away at the door. <laughs> to, to like break in basically. To get in, yeah, because it was cold out. And so he's chipped away and um, the police were really cool about it. They were actually super understanding and so was Beckner and his mum. And, and in the end, I think he just had to pay whatever, like six, 700 to get a new door frame fitted and all the rest of it. But it was... That's just like classic day in the life of a team manager, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, and honestly, there was stuff like that that would happen all the time and you just kind of be like, all right, what is it today? Cool, let's just, let's get on with it. Let's fix it. Let's make sure that no one's too worried about it and on we go. And I mean, God, we could have stories for weeks about it. So Most when, of them wouldn't be publishable. Wouldn't be repeatable. No. So when did you, because... So you did it for five years. Yeah. For um, and that was all forum, or did you also work on like no, that? The... That was all Burton. That was, sorry, that was all forum at you know, and it was like under the umbrella of Burton. Yeah. Um, and again, it was good because it was kind of like you got to see the inner workings of Burton without having to be sort of at the coalface. And then, 2010, um, I got a phone call from Phil Young, one of your recent guests. Yeah. And uh, you know, he's like, right, John, I've I've got something for you can we have a chat? So we turn up to Ispo and he introduces me to a couple of people from Nike. And I knew, so I knew David Benedict was working at Nike doing some kind of consulting gig. And then I'd heard that he was leaving or he, he was going off to pursue something else. And so when Phil called me and knowing that Phil did a lot of agency work for Nike, I was thinking, right, well, I wonder if this is that. So we go to Ispo, sit down with a couple of folks from there and um yeah they just kind of start sounding me out of like hey we really want to make a push in snowboarding in europe what do you think about coming on board to work with us and help build it out and at the time it was 6.0 because remember they used to have 6.0 there was nike snowboarding yeah 
and this was a 6.0 role and so at the time there was like hundreds of athletes on contract just for footwear across Europe yeah we did I think we did it just before you yeah so Chris did it didn't he yeah exactly and we did it through ACM and there was, that was when he signed like Sparrow Jamie yeah and Josh was, Bryceland was on that team and sort of every country had multiple athletes yeah I mean it was so yeah so they basically they sounded me out and um that was in the February and then in the May I started with Nike and it was kind of a freelance thing the first couple of years so I could actually live in my often I was gonna say was that base still there yeah well it was mad because they were like so we kind of want you to be in the mountains so you don't need to move to Amsterdam you can kind of work from wherever you are and so I was just like right well I'll be right here in my apartment in my often near the lift and then in the summer my girlfriend at the time Raika she moved down to France to work for Channel Islands um, and so we would go down there and um, spend the summers down there so I had sort of two years where it was like you could travel wherever you wanted build this team yeah and they talk about sort of dream jobs and at that point you're just like right well this doesn't get much better yeah it was in, insane so you had because obviously this is the team that was basically Gigi, Haldor, Muller. Well, so, yeah, this was the thing. So it was 6.0. So when I came in, it was, as you say, Jamie, Sparrow, um, Swoboda, Mark Smoller. Like, there was a ton of people like that. And then Gigi, Nicholas, they were on the Nike snowboarding part, which was run by Bobby Meeks in North America. Yeah. And so there was somewhat of a delineation. So my sort of first thing was kind of coming in and, figuring out who we could transition over to full outerwear deals right and that obviously meant we had to kind of sunset a few of the contracts for people just on footwear to pay for it but so we we set about doing that and we signed petu at the time we signed german Braten, yeah um jamie obviously silly norandal we had a rad crew of those folks and then after like a few months we were like right we need sort of someone else and we went out and um started talking to haldor and between the people in the US and us in Europe, we got a deal done with him. And then it was kind of like, right, we have a pretty rad crew now. And so we would kind of do trips together the whole time. And the amazing thing with it, going to a brand like Nike was <coughs> all of a sudden, kind of whatever you suggested, which played into the realm of like taking care of athletes, you could, you could kind of do whatever it took. So I remember we started and the first event of the year that I went to, I said to my boss at the time, Kuhn, I was like, right, well, I'd love to bring a physio along. And of course, at the time, like, this was, what, 2010, 2011, people are a bit like, you are yeah. physio. And so the first event we went to, Petu goes up and he, like, does a, I don't know, a hack and flip on the quarter pipe at the European Open yeah. in Larks, lands on the coping and literally like crawls away and was just like yeah well i can't ride tomorrow and then we had um this physio yan on site and so he spends basically six hours with him that night massaging him putting the tape on that he used to do and gets gets him ready for the next day and he could ride and he can ride and he won it yeah and and at that point it was kind of like sign off of like right well so from that point on we did a contract with the physio to come with us on every trip we'd have chefs come along to cook for people and I know at the beginning people were probably like this is maybe a little overkill but it did pay off in terms of results for the athletes we had yeah so there's an obvious line of argument about that which is symbolic of it becoming more of a sport and less yeah you know like nike coming in with physios and chefs yeah and it, did you get shit for that yeah well not i don't 
thing we got shit for it but you could definitely you know people were a bit like what you know what's all this about but then on the other hand when you see people like in Petu would be a great example like you see how high he goes on like transitions especially you could argue the forces he puts on his body and you see it now the fact he's still got back issues that like the forces he's putting his, on his body are arguably much harder than like a track and field athlete and so I don't know the more time I spent with people at Nike I was like well there's not much reason we shouldn't be treating athletes this way and and as I say I think it also helps them kind of consider their sort of choices in terms of how they look after themselves and so yeah it was definitely you know there was times where people were like it was a little new but I mean now you see it like with national teams everyone does it so you kind of think well I would say it's somewhat vindicated well of course yeah I, I remember as well wow come around the corner into a big bank of cloud um i remember one of the things we talked about at the time i remember jamie won won the rail comp didn't he in japan in japan yeah. wearing a helmet and i remember um i remember someone in the industry basically going like yeah that's not legit yeah he's not a proper snowboarder because he wears a helmet because it's basically like him and jed anderson at the time when they're wearing helmets to do rails yeah and there's that whole thing of like yeah, it doesn't count if you've, like... Would a skateboard wear a helmet? No. Therefore, it's not legit, you know? Yeah. And I remember me and you just being like, how fucking ridiculous. You know, like, telling some six... Because he was young at the time as well. And, you know, saying to some kid, no, you're not allowed to wear a helmet because yeah. some, some 35-year-old dick from Southern California thinks it's not core. <laughs> it's like... You think, yeah, because, I mean, you think about it, and that was, you know, it wasn't long after the, you know... Actually, sorry, it was just before, you know, like Kevin had his accident. Yeah. And, you know, you think someone has to call his parents. And, like, that's what, I, honestly, traveling with, you know, we had, when we built that Nike team, we had people from, you know, like all the way from people who are like thir 13, 14 years old. Jamie, I think, was like 17, 18 at the time. You know, you end up having an amazing relationship with their parents. And that was always my thing. I was like, well, if something goes wrong, I full well know I'm the one picking up the phone. And so I, we never once tried to like pressure anyone into not wearing helmets or anything, because I also think it's always <laughs> like, that's, if that's how people grow up, you know, it's it, sort of every man to himself really, you know? Well, it's just, a, you know, it's an inevitable step in the evolution of it. Yeah. It's going to evolve, you know, you, like money coming in, the profile we, growing yeah because you see it now i mean you see people like sky brown the skateboarder like she's growing up i was she 10 or 11 now and she's grown up always wearing a helmet and she'll most probably will for the rest of her competitive life and i mean also as well now a lot of the competitions make it mandatory which kind of is good because it means it's not the it's the onus isn't on the on the rider to kind of decide it anymore yeah which is good yeah so i mean on that nike era like you it must have been a bit of a dream gig really well it, yeah it was and the other nice thing with it as well was because whilst i was working for nike i was also able to keep hosting events and stuff so henry and me had been hosting like all kinds of different events and it started off doing like rail events at like ispo and stuff and so quite often on the weekend we'd head off somewhere and like host an event for volcom or whatever and everyone was cool with that even and then in the end like went all the way to doing I hosted um, Aaron Style in Innsbruck one year so with Shvani and it was rad because I could do all that on the side because you um, 
speak German as well, don't you? So, <coughs> yeah, I've, you're I've, able to like. Yeah, I could muddle along with Schwani in German, and then when it needed some someone with a bit of English to kind of get it going as well, I was there. So it meant I could do that, and still, and then we also went and hosted like US Open and stuff as well. So it's kind of nice that you could do both of the things, and again, it just kept your foot in like multiple doors at the same time. Yeah. So did you move over to Portland for the job at this time? Yeah. So um, the person who was in charge of global sports marketing he wanted to move back closer to home and so the role became available and then the someone i've been working with was like hey do you want to come over and see what it's like over here so yeah i flew over in the march of 2012 just to get an idea of it and then fully moved over in the september to head up sports marketing for the snowboarding category and that was essentially again another transition time when we went from having 6.0 and nike snowboarding just having like one team of athletes so again it meant that we had to kind of like sharpen up a little bit who it was we we're actually standing for but yeah that was september 2012 that i moved over for that job That's, i mean that must have been a big big move well it, it's so funny because i think especially moving to this role and i've always kind of felt it but when i've started working at the u.s office you know it's one of those i remember coming in first couple of meetings and you think all right if i can if i can last a month if i can maybe do six months or a year that will look right on the resume won't it yeah and you basically are just because you come in and all of a sudden you've got you know even on on the snowboarding world there was some of the best people in the industry working alongside you and you just think like god if i can keep up here for a year i'll be doing all right i mean it's one of those things you just can't really turn down isn't it that like yeah, no. get the opportunity to well that was that was honestly what was my decision when I left Burton and went to Nike um, I honestly didn't really want to leave Burton because I loved it and I had great we loved everything about it but then I was kind of like well if I don't go now the opportunity might not come along again and yeah. it was the same thing moving to the US I was like well if it's not now it may not come again so I was like well we might as well try it and see how, how we like it and that was yeah seven years ago have you always like these opportunities that have come along have you always approached them in that way have you always just been a bit like happy to take a bit of a risk you know a bit of a sort of suck it and see approach yeah well i honestly i've always just felt very very lucky that they've kind of fallen into my lap in that way because one thing i haven't been very good at is like there's some people at work who i work with and they have these maps for the next 10 years of which job they want after the next one and i've never done that i've just kind of been like somehow I've been lucky enough so far to fall from opportunity to opportunity and I've just taken each one as it's come yeah that's a bit keen 10 year life but yeah <laughs> so <laughs> I don't have one of them it so I've been yeah I've been fairly lucky with that well I think you play it down a bit you know you say like oh fell in fell in a lap or but you it's not really how it came across to me like from looking at it from the outside in, it looked like you were extremely proactive, like all the way along. You know, and it's one thing to say like, "Well, get the opportunity with Nike snowboarding," but that was like a massively successful program, right? I mean, you must, you yeah, must be, you must be stoked when you look back on that. Oh, it was it was amazing, and yeah, it's, it's things that you can look back on having a hand in creating. Yeah, I was phenomenally proud of it. I mean. It was, you know, when I look at the crew that we had assembled, even from internally, like we had Bobby Meeks working on it, Brian Craig, who came from Quicksilver. And, you know, we had 
the best in the business making the boots who'd come over from Burton as well. There was just an amazing crew. And then you sort of look at the team and you had everyone from, as you say, Nicholas, Giggy, Danny, Haldor, and then the crew of people we had working on capturing content with them, like Froda, Surreal. Um, you were with Muzzy, didn't you? Muzzy, Joe Carlino, yeah. Per Hampus. Like, the, the thing, you know, I always remember someone said this, like, if you have a good idea, the money, like, the money will fall off the trees for it. And, yeah. you know, when we did like the snowboarding film, I definitely wasn't the one who kind of put the wheels in motion, but I was kind of the one who finished it. And it was just amazing because, yeah, as I say, if you have a, a crew which consists of like Pear Hampus, Muzzy, um, Joe Carlino, all of a sudden you just got this crew where you're like, well, these people know how to make an amazing piece of content and we have arguably the best riders around so it was just a, a great time to be able to work on it did you take that and I, I think the answer is yes but i'm guessing you were aware of the kind of position that you were in as this bridge between a culture like nike and also the culture of snowboarding yeah that's a, yeah. That's, that's a position that needs to be treated sympathetically and, it, and, and subtly it is we, did you feel that i did the one thing i'll say though is a lot of the people I've worked at Nike, especially the person I worked for at the time, they are so aware of that relationship and that role that you hold and they're respectful of what the industry needs. So there was never a time where it was, there were, how should I say this? There was only a couple of times where it was like, well, this needs to happen. It was always, okay, what do you think we should do if we need to get into eyewear? What do you think we should do here? And it was, they were always, acutely aware of how it was perceived outside of um, the Nike campus for example yeah and I think you see that with skateboarding now like the people that they have working on skateboarding they empower them a hundred percent to make the right decisions for skateboarding and when you look at the people who work on the skateboarding business the majority of them come from a skateboard background some of them were pro and so you know they're they're doing right they're doing their level best to do right for the industry and that's the other interesting thing because when we worked to, on the snowboarding program like the even just the average cost of boots because boots weren't that profitable of a thing like they ended up ticking upwards that's pretty good. Um, and a lot of that is to do because we we kind of came out with new innovation and we kind of pressure tested would consumers actually go for it and yeah we we tested out the model and they actually would and they adopted like higher price point boots and better quality right than where the market was at the time right um so obviously it ended uh, yeah and was, did that come out of the blue um not really so it was a weird one um we'd had a we'd had a phenomenal kind of two-year stretch so i moved over here we made the film we made we there was like a bunch of awards for that. We launched down in South America. We had like a heli trip down there and it was, everything was amazing. We went into the Olympic cycle and we go to, we go over to Sochi and, you know, we had a bunch, we had a few people win medals across disciplines, but then obviously Sage won the gold medal in slope style. Yeah, and he was one of your, one of yours, wasn't he? Yeah, and he was one of our, you know, and he, it was funny because no one really expected him to do it um but anyway he did it and after the event 
we come back to campus and generally whenever someone does something amazing so like the other day Elliot Kipchoge came to campus after he broke the um, two-hour marathon record and there was like a sort of ceremony for him and all the rest of it and I remember coming back after the Sochi Olympics and sort of saying like oh you know shall I book flights for Sage up here and people are like no no we're we're good now we'll do something later and I was kind of like oh that's interesting and so that summer there was always sort of there was always a few rumors flying around um and then there was a couple of sort of repositioning exercises of like okay could we set the business up differently um and we sort of explored it a little bit but then uh, and again to that point to the best of my knowledge it was all going and then there was literally one oh i think it was like on a monday morning my boss called me from London and he was like, right, this is what's going to happen. Um, we're going to shut this program down. And tomorrow morning I've booked you a room. You, Sani, Bobby, you have to get in the room and I want you to call all the riders within three hours and then it's done. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, that's a tough one, to put it mildly. It it was. It was. The, the thing I'd say with it, it was a, a great learning for me in terms of like, being upfront and honest about how to treat these situations because you could have just you could have just eked it out and you could have you know put rumors out there but it was very much like hey we need to we need to do this the right way and so everyone who had outstanding contracts including like team managers etc we honored those contracts and so some of the people had just had new three or four year deals and those people all remained um they all had the option to remain with the company to remain like on the payroll but also get support for projects they were in for the remainder of those contracts right so it was done it was done in a way which was trying to be again as respectful to the riders and the industry as possible you know we have great relationships with with all the riders to this day and i mean there was a couple who were kind of like well i told you so this would have happened but on the flip side you're like i think the day I started working at Nike, I remember my mum and dad were like, well, you do know they can pull out of snowboarding. I was like, yeah, for sure. But even if you have a year or two great years there, it's the best experience you could have. So, and I think it was the same for a lot of the riders. We were all in that same boat. Well, that's just part of being in the industry though. Yeah, I mean, that's any just brand part, could go part, under, part, yeah. A part and parcel, you know, you, they have cycles, these things, as we yeah. know. And, well, there's a couple of things to say about that. The first thing I'll say is, you did sneak the bald face trip through <laughs> just before that happened so you know you went yeah. out on a you went out on a you know you, sage didn't get to do the meet and greet at the campus but you did all get to go to bald face there's a little cap on Thank that you. so Thank you know you for calling that out yeah. <clears throat> and i i'm still pretty jealous of that one yeah we um but that was it because we were working with uh we were working with Dragon at the time on our eyewear program and they actually were the ones who invited us. Yeah, because it was Will, wasn't it? Yeah, Will and Mike Tobia and they were like, okay, we want to do something. So they took a couple of us from internal and they took Sage with us. And yeah, I'd never been to Bullface and you go there and you see like this, you know, and this was just after they did Supernatural and stuff and you see the size of the features that because there's always the one shot of Nicholas where he basically ollies over a flipping tree. And well, it's, there's the shot of Giggy where he does yeah. like that fucking 84 hour or whatever it is. And, and I think it's, what, <laughs> it's like when you see it on TV, you're kind of like, oh, okay, that's one thing. But when you go there and you see like, oh, you're jumping from this tree to that thing there, yeah. it makes you realize the enormity of it. And 
I think it's always one of the problems with backcountry snow and making it look as insane as it is because when you go out there with them and you realize like oh these these boys are legit yeah um yeah i'm still i'm still pretty that's that's on the list it, yeah i think it's definitely on the yeah I keep, definitely on the bucket I, I, list i'm idly like 50th which is uh, worryingly not that far away but anyway well, yeah. uh, well then the other thing i was gonna say about the nike snowboarding thing is yeah you know there's a couple of riders definitely did a bit of a have your cake and eat it moment like took took the money and then went oh well actually that just goes to show that Nike aren't asked about snowboarding kind of thing and how did how did you feel about that kind of because that, that was a thing in the industry wasn't it you know like when, when it happened everyone was a bit like well there they go again pulling yeah. out when it doesn't suit them anymore and again I just uh, I think for for that time like yeah I know there was a couple of riders who were like that but as you say, it's kind of like, well, you got paid pretty well to be part of it. Um, you did have other choices out there. And I think like Nike did, we honestly did everything we could to support every rider with whatever project they had. So like, you know, Nicholas, I know you worked on Fruition, like that came out after we were actually finished with snowboarding and we, we still paid a whole bunch of production money for that. Like, yeah all of Haldor's projects when he used to do the Helgeson's videos we helped pay for Johannes to travel with him to film on that and so again it was we were doing the utmost we could for like supporting the projects that the actual riders wanted to do and so yeah when you read a bit about bit of that afterwards you are a little bit kind of like it does leave a little sour taste in the mouth but on the other hand as well I, I don't know I just look back very fondly on it all and, the, and as I say the majority of the people we're all su still super close and you know there's a few of them like Louis Vita every year on your birthday you can set your clock by getting a text from him or Sage or Sage's mum and dad and it's just yeah it was a, it was an amazing it was an amazing time we got so lucky with some of the trips we got to go on yeah you had some crazy ones we um there was one so when we launched in Chile and the guy down there was like right well I need the biggest and the best you have down here to launch snowboarding for us so we were like right okay well we checked in with everyone and it turned out that Nicholas and Giggy and Danny could make it so we fly down there and I suppose I've always been I've, I've been lucky enough to like ride with very good snowboarders but I haven't always like been able to go out into the backcountry with them primarily my lack of ability and also I don't ride a sled and yeah all the rest of it but so we go on this trip to Chile and yeah we go they organise a heli trip and I mean the whole thing was ridiculous like they laid on like a heli from the top of the W Hotel in Santiago up to Valle Nevada right um, again a good lesson in being selfless of course there was only like I think five seats on the heli and so there was no space for the team manager so I had to, <laughs> I had to get this bus up there and I got I got uh, road sick I got uh, travel sickness on the way up there but so we get up there and as then you, as you watch the heli fly yeah, over yeah you're like alright boys <laughs> um, but so we get there and yeah again so I've seen you know you see them in the videos and stuff but like the night before we're in the hotel and that day we go up we check it out we fly about we come back down Giggy takes a bunch of photos of Nicholas and like that night Giggy is like it's interesting him and Nicholas because whilst they come across somewhat similar I think in terms of riding ability style background etc Giggy is like Mili like military level operation he's like right well, I want to go here I want to do this and I'm going to go here and I'm going to do this 
I want to know who's sitting where on the heli, and he is so on it and planned. Really? It, yeah, it's a, yeah, that doesn't super impressive. That's that's not um, how it comes across, is it? And then you have Nicholas, who's just like, hey, he's gonna go up and yeah, Bang see, see what's good here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as he does. And then you got Danny, who turns up, and Danny being Danny, he would turn up on most trips without a board bag. Right. And just expect that the team manager is like somehow sourced <laughs> his boots, some snowboards from GNU, all of his outerwear. And and then at the end of the trip, he would leave the bag there with all of it in as well. Right. For someone at the hotel to find. And um, yeah, so we go up this one day. And again, I've sort of not really seen them all in the flesh operate like this. We drop off at this zone and none of us have ever been there before. Nicholas and Giga, they're just like, cool, this looks pretty good. And I've got some photos I'll give you from it. They literally just start ollieing off this thing, backside 180 and backside 5 into this powder field. And I suppose in my mind, I was always like one of those people, I would need to snowboard in the same place a bunch of times before I was comfortable with it. Yeah. And then you try some stuff. And they were literally like, bang, first hit method. And you know, when you're, and I have my camera there, and you're taking pictures of someone like Nicholas, and he goes along and he finds like a little lump and does a method on it. Yeah. And you're taking the phone, you're literally in your head, you're just f- freaking out. You're like, oh my fucking God, this is Nicholas. He's doing the method and I'm shooting it. It's insane. And so <clears throat> watching those two especially was one of the best things that I ever got to see. Oh, it's a real privilege getting to ride with like world-class snowboarders. Yeah, and one just of the, one of the most fun, One of the most fun days I ever had was with Steve Gruber in Meyerhofer. Oh, yeah, he's insane. And he was brilliant. Well, Owen was there as well, and he was he was brilliant because he, he took us on a powder day. I don't even really know why he did. He just was like, yeah, come with me. I'm going to... And Beckner as well. And then Beckner, oh, sick. And then Beckner had... To, so, obviously, we're getting shown around Meyerhofer on a powder day by Beckner and Steve yeah, Gruber, which is the just royalty. absolutely rad anyway. And then Beckner had to sort of leave... And Steve was just like, what do you want to do? And we were like, more of that, you know? And he just kept taking us to all these, like, really sympathetic snowboard guiding. <laughs> you know what I mean? Obviously, like, yeah. clocked our ability. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I got it. I got it for you boys. Oh, but just, see, just seeing him ride. Yeah, his board control his, is so good. I mean, it was unbelievable. I've never really seen anything like it, you know? I like, was, yeah, he was always one of those where you'd see him, like him and Beckner, when we'd be in my and you'd see them ride by and they would hit, like, a little lump or something and just pop an ollie and the next thing you know they'd be coming past you like head high yeah that just their board control is just something that you see a few riders like that now but that that like especially that generation was so good you know who else is, is like that duncan carr duncan carr has got like the most incredible board control i mean like massively underrated he was uh he was one of my heroes at the time he rode for forum he had the steez he had the he had the special blend out of where he was he yeah was we, right there. we we did it he's one of the most impressive riders i ever took on a trip like we did a trip to spain for white lines and we were all just you know and he was really nervous that was what was funny because he'd never done really a snow trip for the mags oh yeah because he was like captain dry slow and he was re- i remember he was really nervous he didn't he was a bit scared of being off piste and he was always saying to me like is this is this safe is this safe and i was a bit like yeah like it's fine don't worry about it yeah and then, but he just blew us away because he was just so, so good at snowboarding. Yeah, I mean, he had the, he had the style at a time when it was like a lot of people were still struggling to figure out what their own style was, and he had it, <laughs> he had it already at that point. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the obviously pretty random job me and you've got <laughs> that uh, you get to see it. Yeah, you get to you get to kind of. 
so like, witness that, that. So on that trip, it was funny. So you had those two that were doing it, and then Danny obviously turns up without his stuff, and then you so, had to do that a few times for Danny. I'm yeah, guessing. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was, yeah, there was a couple of them like that, and then um, so then the heli, the heli guy, he's like, right, we're going to go up again, and so we drop Nicholas and Gigi off on these lines, and so then he tries to drop us off on this peak, and I've like. I'd never been heli. I still haven't actually. Like that was the only time I'd been like heli boarding, I suppose. Right. And he like drops us off on this peak, and it's literally like you know it's about six foot across. And I'm like, there is fucking zero chance I'm getting out of this helicopter right now. And I'm like, Danny, you're the Olympian. Yeah. And he looks at me the same way. And in the end, I think we both got out like holding each other's hands, kind of thing, and just yeah, navigated our way down the hill because we were like, this is. Yeah, and it, I, we just watched Giggy kind of like catch a rock on the way down and tumble down this chute. And I was like, what am I doing here? I was like, I'm going to break an arm or something and have to, you know, call the office. Yeah. Send for reinforcements because your team manager's busted himself. I remember, again, like when you see how people react to that kind of exposure, like in when we're doing seasons in Chamonix, you know, like you do all those classic routes. Uh, you know, like the ridge walks, the rests and stuff. And seeing all the locals, like just, you know, I'd be like... Ter- knees knocking together gripping my board <laughs> like walking down this arete like trying yeah. to, and then you'd see like Babs like ride past yeah you know like just like straight line it and all you can think about is all the things that could go wrong instead of what could go right and that's I, my I, thing and I look look at you like what are you doing you muppet <laughs> put your board on and ride it like, uh, okay uh, right so yeah I mean amazing run amazing projects and then it kind of ended and you're in mm-hmm. Portland and you're working at Nike. So what happened next? Yeah. So basically there was a, there was a moment there where, well, first of all, as well, like that night when they were like, right, it's all over. We all went to this Irish pub to drown our sorrows, which was quite nice. The next morning though, it was kind of like, right, what are we going to do? And there was, you know, there was probably sort of seven or eight of us. And some people were kind of like, right, I, I have to work on snowboarding or action sports in general. And so a couple of those folks, headed off so Bobby went down to DC in California um, we had Harvard Fernandez at the time yeah who'd come over from Salomon he went off down to run uh, stance marketing did really well with that but then me and a couple of others we were kind of like well we think we would like to kind of chance our arm at Nike and there was definitely the moment where it's like well would you like to work on skateboarding and not being someone who is from skateboarding properly I, I couldn't honestly imagine going down the path of like having to get into the conversation about subjectivity of style and stuff without having that kind of base of knowledge of skate that i do with snow yeah that'd be quite quite a scary place yeah you know when it came to that decision time i'm like right do you want to keep working in snow and move to another company and do that there was also this moment where i was kind of like well i'm was i was 35 at the time and i'd been working in marketing for snowboarding for 10 years and i you know a lot of that has been as team manager and I was kind of like, well, I think, you know what, it's probably about time for younger people to come in and be in charge of who gets elevated across companies because you do have this this thing where you you do favor people of a certain style. Yeah. And I, I just don't think you can, you can physically and mentally keep up with it to the level. No. I don't, you know, I mentioned this in an interview with Mark Lehman the other day and I put that thing on Instagram and Twitter yeah. about, and you, you totally agreed. And I got a few, which was basically like, you should only have those jobs for five years. Yeah. I do actually believe that. I, I got a lot of people come back and go, you're talking bollocks. Well, you know, and but the point I was trying to make was, 
it's about being current that role and I, I actually just don't think you can like they're cushy roles and they're, they're difficult to give up because you because you get your feet under the table yeah and you and it's and it's ultimately it's a really nice job it, but like to to balance that with the necessary knowledge and currency that you need to be good at that job is really hard and i i, I look at our industry there's a lot of fucking people that should have left jobs a long time ago. Yeah, well, it, was, it was interesting that because so when I moved to the US, um, I wasn't I wasn't primarily just a team manager. I was like in charge of the all the team managers we had and the marketing side. And so we hired Sunny Alababic to come in. Yeah, and it was that was a really good learning for me because Sunny was coming to the table with people we should sign who I had no clue of. Yeah, and that was the first sort of inclination to me that like yeah maybe my sort of seat at the table might be over now and yeah because he was like we've got this girl in austria she she's amazing she can do this trick her name's anna gassa never heard of her yeah i was like <laughs> i mean thanks sonny i've never heard of her oh she's a gymnast great this this will go well oh man sorry and i just clocked the surf sorry to jump you yeah i don't think we're going out <laughs> <laughs> that is and, um, that is cr- yeah wait and so um yeah he yeah so he's like oh Anna Gasser she's great and I was like yeah I'm sure she is she's obviously a gymnast and um I that again like you know Sani has proved me wrong in space there that she is a phenomenal right I mean she's gone on to sort of redefine women's snowboarding yeah but again and that was the thing I was like well if I was to stay if I was to work in a action sports brand now I would make sure to surround myself with like 25 year olds 20 year olds who know what makes people tick because I think especially in like in a bigger brand like that you do need to be relevant and again as you say once you've been there for a while you do develop some bias and also your own subjectivity I think can take over a little bit too much and, but it sounds like you kind of recognise that at, yeah. at a good point yeah and I, again it just kind of having Sani there was great because he, he was someone who could kind of give you that who could kind of give you that new injection of enthusiasm when it came to riders that I've was not really having at the time and so i think it was a yeah all happened at the right time so where are we now is this seaside this is seaside so right here is the cove so in here which is like the good zone yeah for us and then out there is the point which is where there's a bit of a local scene out there this is jerry lopez said this is one of the best waves he's ever surfed out there right um but so as you can see yes it's big but there's still shoulders over there on the left and there's a pretty good rip here so yeah the worrying thing though is that there is no one else out surfing right now so we'll just have to see what happens here yeah that is quite a giveaway i mean it looks like a lot of water moving around as they say yeah <laughs> we'll park up we'll have a little look let's have a look quite nice to get the wave noise though isn't it here we go there's gonna be some waves coming now so where where are we here um, we are on the cliffs above Manzanita right here, so just by one of the most famous spots, Short Sands, just sort of a couple of miles up down the street towards Manzanita. And this is like the swell has arrived probably yeah. here actually. I think it went from maybe six foot yesterday to about 14 foot today. Haven't seen anyone out surfing so far, but it's um, yeah, it's pretty amazing just to see it when it's this big. You can hear it, can't you? Yeah. Yeah, that is whopper. So you surfed here. You surfed here in the summer. You said. So we yeah. So we surfed here in the summer. Came out here a couple of times. 
when it was way smaller and you can kind of surf off the rocks down there and there's a good right there there's also a few locals here though so you don't get in there that often but um it's a bit local is it yeah just a bit but it's good though in general it's a good good spot but short sand's just uh, there that's like the place where most people go like if you've been surfing in oregon once you've been there yeah that's kind of the zone it's got to be perhaps the most picturesque podcast recording spot yeah it's definitely definitely pretty good up here yeah so we were talking about when the end of nike snowboarding happened and you know the decision to stay at nike and stay in portland yeah so and it sounded like the conclusion that you reached was stick it out see new opportunities see what happens yeah well i think the thing was i was i loved snowboarding but i also realized that i just loved sport in general and if you're any kind of like person who's into sport nike's a great place to be like you came around the campus earlier and you see how how much how the facilities are it's pretty amazing if you're into that so yeah at that point i thought right well i'm going to see what else i can get into um i kind of as i say i didn't go with the skateboarding option i went off and my boss actually she managed to get me a sort of stretch assignment covering for someone on maternity in the training category so like crossfit general fitness stuff and moved over there and ended up staying there for a couple of years right and it was really really interesting because it was when kind of crossfit was exploding yeah which again coming from snowboarding was quite a different world but it was really cool because crossfit is somewhat of a it has like a very loyal niche kind of following yeah i was gonna say people tend to get as passionate about that as we all geeked out on snowboarding right you know there's like a real community yeah and you you see that a lot i mean like there's a lot of people from i know scott morris and lizzie they do it and there's a lot of people who like they they develop that same obsession about crossfit that we all do about snowboarding yeah and it was it was good we actually we did some we launched a CrossFit shoe, the Metcon in London, with Phil. And uh, it was funny because I was like, right. I got a brief from my boss. He was like, right, we need to do a launch event. We need to find somewhere iconic to do it. So I called Phil. I said, right, Phil, this is what we're trying to do here. He's like, right, well, you're going to need two things, money and time. And guess what? You haven't got any time. So this is going to cost you a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the old triangle, isn't it? You can, have, you can pick two out of three. Speed. Yeah. cheapness and, and quality isn't it you yeah know? and so <clears throat> phil was amazing he found us um right by tower bridge like this old fish market we went in and we built like a suspended floor and then we had like some of the world's best crossfit athletes come out who all you know they proceed to sort of pick up 150 pounds over the head and like slam it on this floor that we'd built yeah and they basically the night before the event just completely ripped the floor apart so then overnight we had to rebuild the whole flooring no to really stand it yeah jesus yeah but it was good phil just got on with it him and his crew it was amazing yeah and um it was really good and i've tried to continue that on from that time to work with people from skateboarding and snowboarding because i think most people have like a propensity to work quickly and effectively without too much of a song and dance and yeah phil was a sort of great partner on that stuff so. yeah and have you found yourself like settled here yeah pretty much i mean um yeah so we had four years here working on snowboarding a couple of years on training and then so since then kind of at the time when i switched categories again over to women's we had which is what you do now right? yes yeah, what i do now yeah um we had the first of our kids lenny in 2015 and so that was good because it was actually a time when i could stop traveling as much as i used to do before yeah and it was really nice because i could just be at home a lot more help out around the house 
and then we had our second child Lily in 2018 so it's been yeah it's been really good yeah to be settled here and it's just nice to bring kids up here because you have the beach which is an hour and a half from home you have the mountain which is an hour and a half and then there's like lots of parks and stuff for the kids so yeah it's pretty kid friendly do you think you, you, you'll stay in Portland or can you see yourself heading back to Europe I think we're start I can I can definitely feel Mariah has got the itch yeah um, and I'm we did the trip back to Portugal recently and that definitely got us thinking I actually started learning Portuguese just to kind of get ahead of it yeah um, so we'll see I don't know where we'll we'll end up it was just more it was just nice to go back and see a lot of friends who we used to hang out with yeah massive set on the way huge that is like sort of 15 feet isn't it yeah that's way above our pay grade <laughs> mine certainly <laughs> yeah yeah Portugal I mean you know this, 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 if you're going to choose a spot yeah it's pretty nice down there Mark and Henry have both got places down there now and um, Greg's down there there's a bunch of people down there so it's good we I don't know when or and again it may not be there maybe Amsterdam maybe London not sure yet it's just kind of trying to figure it out but I know Marika is and we are as well like definitely have a goal at some point to have a house by the beach somewhere yeah we have one in the mountains in my often so that's the next goal yeah to get a place by the beach and how's it been being like an avid Swansea City fan on this side of the Atlantic that's a great question it's actually been really good because football <laughs> that's my favorite question <laughs> football is actually really popular in Portland yeah I really noticed that like it, everyone keeps bringing it up yeah and Everyone keeps going, oh, I support United or I support Liverpool. Or. Yeah, so everyone's got a team. Um, there's So Portland Timbers play here as well in the MLS. Um, we have They just extended the stadium, so we have like 25,000 people most weeks there. And then we also have Portland Thorns, which is the women's team. So that's where um, Tobin Heath plays. Megan Rapinoe used to play there and Alex Morgan. And they always have like, I think their average attendance this season was 19,000 which is like by far the biggest women's team in the world and the the sort of support for football in Portland's amazing it's really good yeah it's it's a big football town um, isn't it and there's like there's a guy from Nike who's actually started a Everton bar called the Toffee Club really and uh we'll go there tomorrow morning for a for a bit of breakfast and maybe a cheeky beer to watch the morning kickoffs yeah and then there's also we opened there was um, a place called Rose City Futsal that was opened up so there's like indoor Futsal now, and we had we had a pretty good team. So Vile, who you met, yeah, yeah. Fox, yeah. Bobby Meeks. It was like kind of a that's a bit of a snowboard royalty team. Yeah, it? it was pretty good. Most of us sort of we had we had the passion that we do for snowboarding with none of the skill that we once had. Yeah. Um, so we do that, and actually, actually held a film premiere here for Swansea about the journey through the league. So Jack to a King. Yeah. Um, I lived it with you, man. You lived it with me. Yeah. And. So we held it in Cinema 21, and I so I rented it out for the night, got in touch with the club, and then they actually Skyped into us that night when we showed it. And so, like, Lee Trundle, Leon Britton, and a few others were, like, on the live feed. And we had 500 people turn up to watch it. And I was, like, bricking it that no one would even show up at all. <laughs> that's, that's so funny. And, uh, yeah, so we did this whole film about Swansea. It was pretty, pretty rad. And are you missing snowboarding? Because, obviously, you're, a, <coughs> you're an absolute geek so yeah so last year we went back to Austria for a month I took paternity leave and went to Meyerhofen and a bit like when I was at college and I never went snowboarding the final year of it 
I hadn't been back to Austria for seven years since we left. I really? There, yeah. I didn't realise that. Yeah, my problem is I'm one of those people, if I can't do it properly, I just prefer not to do it at all. Yeah, that often doesn't square with getting older. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, kids and all the rest of it, yeah. yeah. So I kind of was like, yeah, so we didn't really go and we, you know, we went up here to Mount Baker and Bachelor and Mount Hood and stuff, which has been great. But then to go back to Europe and to go to Meyerhof and it definitely made me realize like we got, and also as well, we went on a really good snow year. We got to do Vangelspitz. We got to do the Abfight. We got to do all the zones that are really, that you should do when you go there. Yeah. And yeah, being there, I definitely missed that. I was like, that that kind of snowboarding, being able to just go off into the, you know, into the forest and stuff. That's something I haven't discovered here as much, and it definitely sort of reignited that part for me. Have you still got the jigger flip? Jesus, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, you might have to explain what the, the jigger flip. Yeah. So, well, when I was snowboarding, it was kind of like I developed a, a trick, and it was. I always watched Danny Wheeler do it, really. He would do cab sevens off the toes with the nose grab, and so I started trying to do that, and it pretty quickly just descended into, like, a switch frontside rodeo. Um, and it worked pretty good as, like, a party trick for, for a year or so, and then I actually stopped doing it because it, it meant that, basically, I would go up the hill, and every time I'd be like, right, I'm going to do a back 180 into a jigger flip, and then that would be the end of my day because I'd kind of either celebrate I'd landed it or I'd be somewhat injured. So then, yeah, one of the years I stopped doing it so I could actually learn other tricks again because it just, yeah, it was just becoming a bit too much. Yeah, you were listing some pretty impressive injury stories over lunch. I mean, yeah. that, presumably that also had a bearing on, you know, when you got offered the things at Burton and, yeah. and Forum, you know, you were a bit like, cause, you know, you were talking about like breaking both collarbones. Yeah. And, well, you know, like some the proper, you know. Yeah, the biggest, the biggest one i had actually was um so i think it was 2006 it was actually when i was kind of going through this period of do i work at burton or do i do it part-time and then that valentine's day actually i remember going up rode the park and i like hit the second jump which is more of a roller jump and i drifted and i landed kind of like on the the ice blocks on the side and i sort of came around and i was like oh i think i broke my collarbone again because that was my default to everything yeah went down to see the doctor and he was like, no, there's nothing wrong, collarbone's fine. And I was like, well, there's something wrong because my left arm really, really hurts and it's kind of tingling. And so ended up going to Schwarz to another hospital, had a couple more x-rays and the guy's like, oh, I see the problem. You've chipped, uh, you've chipped the bone, like the C6 bone in your neck and you've broken the joint in between five and six. Right. And so, yeah, like that next week I had to go in and I got uh, C5 and six fused together and they took bone out of my hip and kind of covered the whole, like put that in where the joint was, covered it all in metal. Right. And so, yeah, that definitely was that moment where I was like, I'm definitely not the next Sean White. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> 26 with a busted neck. That's, that's pretty, that's kind of pretty serious. Yeah. So that was kind of that. And then I had it, actually, we had a work trip to Mountain High and I was riding there and just hitting some rails. And this was a few years later and I caught my toe edge, just board sliding a stupid rail. And snapped my humerus before you say it wasn't very funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I snapped my left humerus. And it was crazy because like, as I sat up, I like tried to put my hands down to push myself back up. And I felt like something was wrong, but I didn't really know what. And I, as I put my left hand down, I fell over. And I looked around and my, basically my forearm wasn't there. It was like up behind, my, up behind me somewhere. Man. And so I had to like, a bit like a dog who's looking after a sick person. I had to like put my arm 
in my mouth and just basically hold it to get down the hill because obviously in the US you don't want to go in an ambulance anywhere. And then um, Kevin Keller I was working with at the time at Burton, he drove me down to Orange County, went in there and they were like, well, we're just going to put a plaster on this thing. And of course, like, you know, at the point my arm was sort of hanging off because it was a fully snapped arm. And so I said, no, I think I'm going to go back to Austria because in Austria the doctors are pretty good with throwing metal and everything. So flew back with a broken arm, got off the plane, it was all purple and yellow. And yeah, the guy was like, well, if you'd have come a day later, we wouldn't have been able to operate on this thing. Did the, uh, the foolishness of youth. The foolishness, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I'll do, I'll fly home, like with the, my arm in half. Yeah, and Marika sort of picked me up and she, w- you know, she was mortified that I would even do such a thing. Yeah, um, I'm with her. Yeah, it wasn't one of my <laughs> smartest moves. But I got it fixed, luckily, and... Um, it was a it was a difficult one because I was in the US as well and I t- you know we talking about we were talking about Burton earlier and being a snowboarder being somewhat stupid I didn't have the proper insurance to pay for it. Um, I've had some friends recently tell me that they've never had insurance all the years we've been riding and I was just a oh bit like God. I was like are you well you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah and so I had because I had some insurance but it just didn't it didn't cover what I was trying to do because it was you know it was like I did it somewhere else and and I went to this private doctor up in Hull above Innsbruck um, yeah and they were like okay it's going to cost about five grand and you know fair play Herman Capra from Burton came up and he was like don't worry I'm going to pay for it wow that's yeah. cool and you know I'm forever indebted to him for that he was like amazing because that was also a time when you just snow when you don't have that much money and then yeah. if someone comes along and does that for you like I think it speaks you know we we're talking about Jake earlier it speaks to the sort of yeah what an amazing company that is yeah that's that Again, didn't have to do it. Didn't have to do it. Yeah. Like, you know, and yeah, it definitely was and definitely is like a family down there. Yeah. Well, we should keep moving, eh? Let's, uh, let's, let's crack on. Yeah. So when you decided to, to stay at Nike after the program ended and, you know, you've got this new role, essentially. So can you describe what that is? So, yeah, I did um, a couple of years sort of in the training category, working on that CrossFit thing. And then... After a couple of years, I started looking around for other opportunities. And then um, there was an amazing woman I worked for called Tessa, and she brought me over to work on our women's business. And I was a little sort of apprehensive because the women's business in general, you know, to a sort of late 30s dad of two, <laughs> I don't really see myself as like yeah. that cool. Or that, are, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I, there's nothing about it where I'm like, oh, I know this influencer and that one. Like, that's not really kind of my expertise and I'm fully aware of that. Um, but she was like, well, you know, there's a lot of opportunities that we can work together on. And it's going to be a great to have your skill set. And so I thought, well, okay, let's sort of try it. And so I've been there for a couple of years now and the first six months, it definitely kind of struggled a little bit to figure out what I could add to a women's business where, you know, in general, it was like 95% of the people who work on the business are women. I have a wife, I have a young daughter, but I don't particularly see myself as someone who's that switched on to um, where the world is right now. And so it was a really sort of good awakening for me of like, right, well, first of all, here's what I can add to this business. And then here's also what I can learn. And so... The first, yeah, as I say, the first six months kind of struggled a bit. And then I started working on our bra business, so sports bras and tights. 
and I've kind of been doing that now for the last 18 months and it's been a super good learning because in sort of direct sort of very different to snowboarding because in snowboarding you kind of relied on knowledge of well I think I have a certain like taste in snowboarding subjectivity comes into it working on a sports bra business I have literally <laughs> got no reference points no reference points yeah. never worn a sports bra apart from this year at Halloween when I dressed up as Megan Rapinoe um, never worn a sports bra so literally all you're doing is sort of taking it from consumer insight and data and stuff like that and then making the decisions <laughs> that way so that's been a, a really good way of kind of understanding my role at the company and again just kind of bringing the best out of people to do that but how did you get you because you, you know you literally like you say got no reference points pretty daunting thing to decide you're gonna get into and not clunk your way around you know like so, so um, you know you said you've said women's business so that's it is like that particular um, area of the Nike women's business yeah so I'm particularly on sports bras and tights um and then also sort of play into other areas of it but then as well as that I try and lend a hand where I can when it comes to like sporting moments and athlete moments and like you know obviously the World Cup in France this year was a really big moment for football but also a big moment for women in sports. So. I was going to say so did you see um, a, an effect in what you're doing from that you know well, that was like probably the biggest story in sport this summer yeah really, it, wasn't definitely, it? it definitely was and I think that you know the, the level of the World Cup this summer was one of those where I think everyone does a little bit and then when you combine everyone's efforts it comes into a huge output and just in general being involved in it was amazing because you get you first of all you sort of understand the problem that exists in sport like the fact that there is a patriarchy which exists and so sport is inherently sort of by men for men and then when you sort of see what's going on in football and like the the power of it the global nature of the sport and then the fact that you have like the UN's you um, the US women's national team actually taking like FIFA to court taking their own governing body to court for equal pay and the fact that they should play on the same pitches as the men on grass pitches you realize the benefit that sport receives from having women like that involved in sport well was that difficult as well because you know bringing it back to what you're saying as, as, a, as a man you don't really seem you don't even really notice the barriers that w women face or, no. or, or any um, non-white male um, participants let's say you know it's just something because it's so stacked in your favour yeah. you, don't, you don't even have those reference points to, to call on in that context do you really no and it's something I you know and I, I do realise that this sounds ironic coming from you know, to say a white middle-aged male who's grown up decently well, but you do first of all need to understand what situations other people are dealing with, and again, the the fact that not everyone is coming from the same reference point, and it's a it's been an eye opener for me, and it's definitely, especially coming from a sport like snowboarding, it has definitely opened my eyes in terms of how across all sports, me personally, we need to operate differently to. In, encourage more diversity more women and there's actually there's a there's an amazingly smart woman that I work with called Iris and she spends all her time researching this subject matter and literally every time you spend time with her you walk away feeling smarter about how 
how society works, how the odds are stacked in favour of some people and against others. And you can put that into the work. Yeah, and it, it comes... It's, it's funny because the interview you did with um, Phil, he used a line which was actually the line that we used all the way through this year thinking about the World Cup was that just like you need to see it to be it like yeah. if you don't see someone as a role model in front of you you won't have that goal to strive to and it was interesting in the run up to World Cup we actually went out to the Thorns Stadium and one evening we just interviewed a whole bunch of people men, women, kids and 99% of them were like I follow football today because of the 99 women's world cup team from the u.s who won the world cup in uh, china sorry in the u.s yeah um like with the brandy chastain moment when she ripped off her shirt and she yeah. had the sports bra and they were all like hey that was the moment i fell in love with football and that was because there was role models on tv and that's why they all love football to this day yeah well that's why that what happened this summer was massively important it's a funny thing as well because there is this argument going on in the UK at the minute, like, oh God, it's getting, you know, it's, and it's a male argument, like, oh, it's getting rammed down our throats. Like, yeah. why do we need to see it? Like, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that's why, isn't it? Because- we, um, we need, yeah, I mean, you need to see it because like, you know, I have a daughter and I want to make sure that she has role models in this space. And you, you want to make sure there's people she can look up to. And it, it, it's so funny, all the arguments which get made, like, you know, I remember in the World Cup, there was the thing where the US beat, Thailand I believe it was 12-1 and all the media were getting on the players backs and they're like oh this is outrageous I can't believe they're celebrating like the 10th goal and it's like Leicester beat Southampton 9-0 the other day and Jamie Vardy's running away arms in the air at goal number nine and like no one questions it yeah no one you didn't hear that argument did you no and they're just like well this is 100 and you just think this is the problem that sort of women but women in sport are facing and it's you know, and you could go, you can look at it across the board. I mean, the Serena, when she was arguing with the uh, umpire last summer. Yeah. You know, and everyone was saying she's out of control. And Trevor Noah did an amazing piece on his daily talk show. And it was like, well, LeBron does this every night. No one ever says a thing. Well, they just say it's good. And behavior. in the meantime, here's a lovable montage of all the times John McEnroe gave back to umpires. You know, well, it's like the Greta Thunberg thing as well, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Like Greta Thunberg basically. The argument being, oh well, she's she's a child who's being manipulated. But I, there's a noticeable. I don't remember seeing the argument when Wayne Rooney at 16 made his debut for Everton. Don't remember seeing anyone going like, "Wow, this is outrageous." He's in the public eye, and he's 16, and this is you know, yeah, it, it's fine for him. And it's because he's doing something really important, like play football. Yeah, and you you just see it across the board, and like even, you know, when again like. It's, it's interesting when you talk to people from an, another generation even that they're even one step further removed and they see some of this happen on the TV and they're like, well, she's a bit mouthy. And you're like, well, that, I don't think she is. This is just, she's a sports person. <laughs> this is how it is. Um, yeah, and you just, I don't know. I've, I've been exposed to a lot of this recently. It just made me think a lot about how I want to raise my kids, how I want to make sure that they have people they can look up to and we actually I got lucky enough to meet there's a Aussie rules football player called uh, Taylor Harris and she's a boxer when she's not in season playing football and she posted this one photo on Instagram and you know just a standard 
kick or a punt. I suppose the Aussies who listen to this are going to hate me for that, but I suppose, <laughs> I suppose you call it a punt. And a, a legs I'm like way, a legs way up in the air. And oh no, I remember that picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she posted it, and then a media title reposted it, and then next thing you know, like all the comments were just derogatory and like just pretty vile, really to read. And um, she came back and she sort of reposted it the next day, and she was like before you animals say anything this is me doing going about my day at work yeah it's my job yeah it's what I do for work and you just think well you know and you can in the work you can put this into it can't you you know you can basically try and yeah and again it just goes into making sure that we're elevating all of the athletes we work with and just making sure that we're doing our bit there Um, and just across the board it's just a good learning for me as I say like having worked in snowboarding I was never really exposed to that before and it's it's just something you wish more and more people would have more of an awareness for because I do think it will make us all better people in general right on the road again on the road here we go heading back it's nice day, day man yeah lovely day a little exploring cruisy day yeah turn you up a little bit yeah we good so um I got actually a pretty general question to finish it. Yeah. Because you've uh, well, it's a couple of them actually. So you first, I guess, is it'd be good to know you've been working in the industry what 15, 20 years. Yeah. So how do you see it now? Because you've always, you know, kept up with what's going on with snowboarding. And you see yeah. It, you see it is in a good place. So I think it's the thing that I do love is the fact that there is somewhat of like a I don't want to say a renaissance, but I do see that there's people doing things which are new and giving energy to the industry so I look at what like Karua are doing and you know they've come in with a completely new kind of business model of not relying on a graphic every season it's more about the kind of board you ride and I really like how they've gone about that and also the fact that they know full well like the target consumer they're going after like you can see that's a brand who know what they go after and whenever they release one of their edits you kind of get stoked to go snowboarding again yeah um, and then I'm also really happy, you know, I know you're working with Tassilo, but like with Creator and stuff, we bought a copy of that book last year and it's just really nice to see new print titles coming out. And I know there's always this eternal debate of print and things like this, but I think it does show that people are prepared to pay for good content if it's in a way that, you know, they don't have to get bombarded by adverts. Obviously, this podcast is another example of that where it's telling a richer story and so I for those all those elements I feel really confident about where the industry is right now and we're actually learning more about people rather than it just being like a two-page interview in a magazine where you can't really get that much depth to anyone's story uh, and then also as well as that you you definitely see the sort of work that some of the brands in the snowboarding industry are doing and you know whether or not it be Patagonia North Face in terms of sustainability, obviously the work Burton do about getting new kids into snowboarding. And so I feel I feel very confident with that. And also as well, just the fact that we're starting to kind of recognize a few of the, you know, a few of the older heads and celebrate them a little bit more than we've done before. So like people like Nicholas, it's great to see that he's kind of taking that kind of leadership role. And I yeah, feel like that's he's, definitely changing. That's a positive thing, I think. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably one of the, the most crucial things that we do have 
that we do have kind of role models that aren't just kids who can do 16, 20s. Like whilst there is definitely a need for that, I'm sure, for the majority of the snowboarding demographic, like someone like Nicholas or Giggy or, you know, any of the people working with crew are like, that's a, that's a, that's a good group of people to have kind of heading up snowboarding. So you see, you think it's in a good, sounds like you feel like it's in a pretty good position. I kind of went all the way around the houses there. I think it's in a better position than it's been for a few years because I feel like riders and people are kind of taking back control a little bit from uh, the media themselves. Yeah. So you see that as a positive thing because that's interesting because for a lot of people, it's a bit of a mixed blessing, isn't it? You know, there's the, the argument that we're too saturated. Well, I think sometimes it's just, I wonder sometimes if the people who are making the content know who their target audience is. And the best example of this, you know, there was the Volcom commercial this week about the Olympics. Yeah, that sailed right over and, my head, that. Yeah, and you know, there was Shaquille O'Neal in there, there was someone who's probably famous who I don't know, Hayley Langland, who I do know, but then I was kind of like, well, is this made for the 16 year old who goes to Mammoth every weekend or is it made for me? Like, it just didn't really have anyone that it was kind of made for. And I would argue as well, like there's, just as you look around, like there is some content that comes out every year from people and you kind of wonder, like, okay, who's your demographic for this now? And that's where when you see stuff like what Starla does, putting out edits himself of, you know, they're doing follow cam over a, on a bunch of park laps. Like that's pretty attainable for kids to see and you can kind of understand who the target audience is for that content. And I just think it's that, it's just a bit of a reframing of everyone understanding who they're actually trying to tell stories for. Because I feel like a lot of people try to just continue down the same path of like, right, you need a film every year, you need a magazine six times a year and let's keep going with that format. Yeah, like the the way that it had always been established. I always used to think like that snowboard, uh, sorry, film cycle where it's like you've got to have a film every year. I always thought that was kind of ludicrous, really. I was always a bit like, just just do a project till it's done rather yeah. than be beholden to this and seemingly quite arbitrary deadline, really. Yeah, and I, I just think it just led to this thing where it was like, okay, well, fe- like film season's here again. Let's see what everyone's got. And obviously a lot of it is tied into new products releasing. Yeah. Which you can understand, but then you could also challenge that. And again, I would go back to the Kuru example. Like if it's a bit like surfboards, like new surfboards come out from Hayden or Firewire and they don't change the surfboard graphic every year. Like you buy it based on the performance of it instead of purely the aesthetic. And it would just be an interesting model if at some point we were to shift a little bit more in that direction in snowboarding. Yeah, it's kind of going that way, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I think it would just, you know, because people talk about you have like a surf quiver and it would be nice to get to that point where it was like, oh, that's a 10-year-old fish and just be like, no, that's just a fish snowboard. Yeah. Instead yeah. of it being dictated by the graphic. Yeah, I think that's a really positive thing. Yeah. Yeah, and that's as it's grown up a bit, really. You know, as everyone's got a bit older and is able to diversify the way they enjoy it a bit really yeah and 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 again i think that just speaks to kind of knowing who the audience is and what they want to get out of it so what have you personally learned about snowboarding or life just generally in in the in like this navigating this career like you know as you've described it sort of 
taking these opportunities yeah. as they've come along. So I suppose, yeah, just being super open to every opportunity that comes along um, and learning as you go, really, because you definitely, I realized pretty quick, you don't have all the answers you maybe should do, but there's generally people around who have the answers and making sure you are as open to learning as you can. Yeah, you said something interesting earlier. You said, well, I surrounded myself with people that knew what they were doing. Well, it's, yeah, and no, I mean, honestly, in my current role, it's a little bit like that. Um, because you just, there are, in general, there's always going to be people who know the subject matter better than, uh, I suppose, like I'm a marketing, I would call it a generalist. Like there isn't one thing that I know specifically more than anyone else, but I feel like I have a decent skill set across all of them. But that's where if you work with the right people by sort of part of marketing, you can you can put together a pretty decent team and do it that way. Well, what's the quote? If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> Just, yeah. Um, thanks for doing it, man. My uh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for asking, and uh, thank you for doing it. You, I tell you, there's plenty of us who use this every week to kind of keep us locked into the snow and surf community. So thank you. Yeah, man. Well, thanks for doing it. So there you go, that was me and Weaver, and I hope that was an insightful glimpse into one of the most quietly influential careers in the snowboarding industry over the last decade or so, as you might have gathered. He's an absolute legend, John, and my thanks to his lovely family for the amazing hospitality they put on for us while we were over there. We had a proper blast, so thanks, guys. So there you go, that was the final instalment of my Portland omnibus. Big thanks to Travel Portland, Hertz, Black Diamond, and the Kex Hotel for looking after us so well during our stay the third time I've been to Portland that and that's the first time I left feeling like I'd kind of cracked the place so I'll be back for sure and hopefully next time I'll be heading to Bend to check out the scene down there so yeah Niseko seems like half the British snowboarding scene are here while I'm here including looking sideways veteran Jenny Jones I've got 12 days in town I'm hoping for more snow plan to go up Mount Yotai Yote however you say with a few mates gonna do a few interviews as well while I'm out here Going to catch up with my friend Alex Yoda, who's in town for a while, and Neil Hartman, who's somebody who's been here for decades, knows the scene inside out. And I'm also going to sit down with the great Taro of Gentum Stick too to find out how he's built such a hugely influential brand from his base in Niseko. Very requested guest, so I hope you enjoy that one when it happens. Obviously, I'm going to be spamming the shit out of this trip over on my stories at Instagram at We Look Sideways, as is my want. So if you fancy following along, Go and have a look. Or and if you don't, then nice one. Anyway, I'll be back next week with the first episode from Niseko and hopefully reports of a shitload more snow than we're seeing now. Although it is still snowing, like I say. Anyway, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time. Nice one. (laughs) 